0: This episode of Anabaptist Perspectives is sponsored by Sattler College. I'm here with Finney Caravella.
1: We're in Boston, Massachusetts, at Sattler College, which is something you've been very involved in getting started here. Um, And I know something you're pretty passionate about, you mentioned in your book, is something called ethnic-specific churches. There's a quote uh, from Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, He once said, It's appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, the same hour when many are standing to sing, In Christ there is no east and west. Now, he said that almost 60 years ago, but... How do you see that as a current issue in Christianity? What's your assessment?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great question and I think it's still a very pressing issue. Now, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because sure. there's I think there's certainly groups that have made tremendous strides at achieving excellent ethnic diversity. And as a general rule of thumb, I think wherever a particular church is, it hopefully mm-hmm. will reflect the composition of its locale. Right? So the, mm-hmm. in, in the in the perfect world, the, the, the mix of people will be similar to what you have in whatever area that is. And so if you're mm-hmm. a church in Sweden, well, hopefully the people that are there are Swedish and whatever the, the the immigrant population is there. What is, I think, more disturbing is where you have churches that are sticking out like sore thumbs, where they're, they're in a particular <laughs> area and people are of one particular ethnic composition mm-hmm. and that's totally different from the surrounding environment. So I actually have spent many years in Indian churches, so in uh, mm. South Asian Indian churches, and people don't appreciate this. Uh, there was a uh, the, the, one of the, the leaders in this particular church noticed, it wasn't hard to notice, that everyone in the church was Indian, and they would speak a lot in a local language called Malayalam, which is spoken in South Mm India. And he had asked me to see if I could help lead an effort to diversify this particular church. And well, you can imagine and picture yourself. You're the first person walking into a context like this. And people are speaking a mixture of English and another language, Malayalam, which is very difficult to understand. They dress differently. The food they eat is very different they talk a lot about cousins and relatives. You have no idea uh, who they are. You're going to feel very alienated and you're going to feel extremely just out of it compared to everyone else. And I I had said this was going to happen, but it was dead on arrival. You you just can't do that, right? There's no way that you're ever going to take something like that and truly begin to diversify it because it's just going to feel so, so alien to you. And so, it's easy to see when you're the outsider, right? It's easy to see when, if you were to walk into, if I were to put you, Reagan, in one of these, in each, you would feel mm-hmm. it, right? You would feel mm-hmm. it and like, this just isn't home. It <laughs> wouldn't feel like that's a place where you're going to yeah. you know, settle down and have a family and all that. But what's trickier is, do you notice that when you're an insider, right? When you're in the majority, well, hey, you're comfortable. You know, it, you, it, you fit in great, right? You know the references when people are talking about different speakers or cousins or, or uh, different references to the culture, dress, food, language, dialect, all those things make you comfortable. And mm-hmm. we may not realize that it's extremely off-putting to people coming in from the outside. Mm-hmm. And so, so, the, so the, the real question that, that I would ask people is, have they thought deeply about those issues? Have they thought deeply about what it's like to be an insider and outsider? Because a lot of times people say, oh, we want to evangelize. We want to go out and reach in, into mm-hmm. our community. But they don't realize that there's such cultural entrenchments in that particular community of that church, right, mm. of, of ethnicity, of language, of food, of relationships that make it very difficult for someone on the outside to come in.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I would say it's an it's a incredible mixture out there of churches. Generally speaking, the conservative and Baptist churches have not done well there. They tend to mm-hmm. be more homogeneous and have not succeeded so much in, in that.
1: So you've already touched on this a little, but what does segregation look like currently in American churches?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So it looks very different than it did, say, in the 60s when mm-hmm. Martin Luther King was speaking, although I still think it's, it's a big problem. What it looks like now is it's, it's much less overt, mm-hmm. and you know, there's, there's not going to be some of the same hard lines that were driven, that, that, are, that are drawn, but rather it's more of a, of a subconscious segregation mm-hmm. where where people have put up these barriers around them that they, they're not trying to be segregationists. I mean, like very, very few people that I, I meet, uh, a tiny, tiny percentage would be anything like, I would say are prejudiced or ethnically biased. But, but at the same time, they just don't know how, how mm-hmm. much it's off-putting to people on the outside. I was once in a, in a Mennonite church and one of the bishops came up to me and he asked me about how how Indians, he asked me the question, is it true that Indians ate with their hands? So as it turns out in India, mm-hmm. they don't normally use utensils like forks and knives. They tend to use their sure. hands. And he just thought that was hilarious and just started laughing and laughing. And I thought, oh, it didn't offend me at all. Like, hey, not a big mm-hmm. deal. But I thought if I was someone coming in from the outside, that was gonna, that would be a pretty offensive question mm-hmm. to be laughing at that. It should be some some more respect. And I've seen that happen a number of times. He didn't have an ounce of bad intention at all. To him, it was just a curiosity that he thought was strange and funny. But that's the kind of thing that when you, when you ask it in that mm-hmm. way, you can put people off and they can feel a little bit like, ah, oh, you know, I just don't feel at home here. Yeah. And so that's the type of segregation that exists here, is more these, these construction of these silent barriers, mm-hmm. these, these subtle ways in which we might look down on people. Mm-hmm. I also think that one of the problems that, that often can, can happen, I was speaking to a minister not too long ago where he was specifically commenting that so often, if a church has been in one place for a long time, mm. there's this whole web of family relationships that surround that particular area. Mm. And so often the church then is competing with family reunions and other events. And you can almost have churches that are dominated by a couple of families, really. Mm-hmm. And what happens in that case is the, the church gets complacent. They, mm-hmm. they don't feel like aliens and strangers anymore. <laughs> because, again, you don't, you don't have to because you've got all these, these relations, these family relations. It's comfortable. It's comfortable, exactly. And I'm not convinced that the New Testament model of church is comfortable. Mm-hmm. But I think we should always be asking ourselves, do we feel like aliens and strangers in the places that we are? Mm-hmm. Because this gets back to what I was saying before. If you feel like an outsider just a little bit, that'll help you, actually. That'll help you because you're much more going to be attuned to some mm-hmm. of these dynamics. And, and frankly, for me, being ethnically Indian in America has been a great help because I'm always thinking about these these kinds of things. Because I when I was young, people made fun of me all the time ah. for you know the color of my skin, things like that, because I was I was in public school. And I got called all these names and, and epithets and things like that. But mm-hmm. but you know what? I'm grateful for that because having lived as an outsider, mm. it now gives me a great sensitivity and ability to to build bridges where I think other people mm-hmm. may not have had that. And so I would really encourage as many people as can to, to go into experiences and to live in experiences where they're outsiders. It'll totally change your perspective on what church is like and this, this underlying problem of just mm-hmm. assumptions and, and, and what really ultimately is creating these barriers of segregation.
1: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's some good advice. Let's pull it back to the New Testament. How does the New Testament discuss things of, of racial divides within the context of the church?
0: This episode is sponsored by Sattler College, a four-year Christian college granting the bachelor's degree in the following majors, biblical studies, business, computer science, history, and human biology. They also offer certificate in biblical studies. At Sattler College, the vision is to train graduates to be a city on a hill, a shining light in greater Boston and the nations. Because the city of Boston is one of the most important global cities for world changing movements and institutions, pursuing higher education in Boston provides students with the opportunity to train for a lifetime of impact for Jesus and his church. Let's pull it back to the New Testament. How does the New Testament
1: discuss things of, of racial divides within the context of the church?
2: Well, you know, one of the things that most people don't appreciate is how dominant these themes of ethnic, conflict and diversity are within Mm. the New Testament. So I'm a a big fan of whenever you read a book, think long and hard about the context before you preach from it, because the context is so informative to understand the purpose of the letter. So I'll give you a great example. So Romans. Mm -hmm. So Romans is, many would say, is Paul's magnum opus, his most important letter. And Mm. it was written in 8057. And the specific context of the letter is mentioned a couple times in the book. What, hap- what had happened was the Jews were exiled from Rome under Claudius. Claudius had made a basically a unilateral move, ejected the Jews out of Rome. Paul ends up meeting Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. They wa- were once in Rome, but they're mm-hmm. now in Corinth. Eventually, Claudius dies. He's succeeded by Emperor Nero. The Jews move back into Rome. And now you have this situation where the Jews, that were, they were kicked out of Rome because they were perceived as mm-hmm. troublemakers. Now they're back in a situation where they're trying to be integrated back into the church that's now predominantly Gentile. And, oh. and so you, what you have is this, this conflict that is simmering between Jew and Gentile there. So, mm-hmm. for example, in Romans 14, there's this conflict that's described where some people are treating one day as holy, mm-hmm. Jews in their Sabbath keeping, versus the Gentiles that regard each day alike. Mm-hmm. And you have Paul making an effort to develop a, a theology of really rooted in Jesus and the wholeness and the picture of Jesus as the one who's gathering the nations to himself. Mm-hmm. And he, he lays that case out in Romans 9 to 11. Uh, I just gave a set of, of talks about this here at our Bible school. And Romans 9 to 11, people think that's about Calvinism and Arminianism. It's totally not. That passage is about the conflict between Jews and Gentiles. And wow. it's the, the driving question that he is is asking is, does it make sense that God who made these promises to Abraham mm-hmm. and, and to Isaac and to Jacob, does it make sense that that people are now sta- standing in opposition to the word of God? Mm-hmm. So here now the Jews are persecutors of the Christians, and how does this all work, right? And so there's a lot of very deep questions about the role of the Jews and mm-hmm. what's going on, and that he ends up per- giving a magnificent vision of that in 9 to 11, which is the basis for the reconciliation that they should have in mm-hmm. Jesus. And so the whole book of Romans cannot be understood unless one understands that it's, it's a book that was sparked by ethnic conflict. Uh, you know, Another wow. example is Galatians, where, of course, you have a group of people who are Judaizers, mm-hmm. and they come in, and Paul opens up the letter and says that even Peter himself had to be opposed to his face. Pretty strong language, right, that Paul uses, where wow. he says Peter has to be opposed to his face because he had withdrawn from table fellowship with the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And it is just a massive, massive problem that exists in the New Testament, conflict between Jew and Gentile. Mm-hmm. Now, that is not something that most of us experience. We don't, most of us don't experience a, a, a direct example of conflict between Jew and Gentile. But I will say this same problem persists in many different ways. Mm-hmm. So it persists in ways similar to what we talked about before, where you have maybe more of a silent a silent segregation. But mm-hmm. here's what's fascinating. So you go to a place like India, and... Uh, India is, is generally the product of Protestant evangelical missionaries. The Christian world, I'm talking about it. Christians are a very small percentage in India. They're sure. 3 to 5% of the population. But the theology that they have is one that has been largely shaped by Protestant evangelical Christianity, which is, you'll see, not that different from even how, say, Anabaptist practices occur. So I'll give you a specific mm-hmm. example. I was in North India, and I was uh, in a particular location where there was a person who was from, he was a Hindu from a different caste, okay? Mm -hmm. And as it turns out in India, they have this caste system where you can only marry within your caste. You're supposed to only eat with people in your same caste. And he would not eat with me because his caste was different. And I was pleading with him to come sit and have a meal with me and sit down at the table. He wouldn't do that. Lo and behold, there's a whole set of churches, hundreds, maybe thousands of churches, where there's Hindu converts that come in and they will share, if you pass around a, a little cup and cracker, no problem. Mm-hmm. But if you say, okay, now eat together, they won't do it. No They refuse way. to do it. And the reason is that they have this caste mentality. Whoa. Now, you think about what the New Testament practice of Lord's Supper was like. Mm-hmm. It was designed by God for, for many reasons, but one of the reasons was to get people together at the same table Jew and Gentile. And the, the original Lord's Supper was set in the context of a full meal. Mm-hmm. The, the bread and the cup were the climax, but they were having a full meal. This is obvious when you read Corinthians. You know, It talks about how certain people are eating all the food mm-hmm. and other people are drinking too much, all that. So, set in the context of a full meal, they were having table fellowship. Well, lo and behold, the Lord's Supper has been modified by Protestant evangelicals, and unfortunately, Anabaptists have run with this as well, uh, where it's this little cracker or piece of bread that you take in a solemn environment, and it's not set in the context of a full meal. And that has Mm -hmm. been imported all over, exported rather, all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so now you have places like India where this nascent Christian community is filled with deep prejudice. And why? Because they've learned that from the West, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? The models of Lord's Supper and communion here Mm -hmm. are impacting globally how people view themselves. And so Mm -hmm you have very similar situations that exist in various tribes in Africa, places in the Middle East, mm. and so we have failed to recognize something called the regular principle, which I'm very passionate about, that the patterns of these sacred sacraments and ordinances that, that God has given to us should not be modified because they are here for a good reason. Mm. And so, so we again, for most of us here, you know, it would not be a big deal to go have a meal together, right? It wouldn't be, like, in, in a church. Like, that's just not a big, uh, a, a typical issue that they would face. Mm-hmm. But we don't realize that we are, are laying the groundwork for, for churches and other places where they may have that problem mm-hmm. and the structures of the New Testament that are intended to cut that down and to address mm-hmm. that head on, we are not doing. And so it's this law of good, of, of good intentions, right? That, mm-hmm. that you can, out of good intentions, modify things and not realize there's going to be disastrous consequences as a result. Mm -hmm. And that's one of my big themes of my own teaching and thinking, is that I feel like so often people have good intentions, great intentions, sweet people, good-hearted people, Mm -hmm. who don't realize that when you tinker with elements of the New Testament here, you're going to produce
1: disaster for people in Mm -hmm. in other areas. So following up on that, then, how can we as believers follow Jesus' example? And what would you suggest is a productive path forward through this?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways out of this. And unfortunately, I think we need a multifactorial approach. There's no silver Mm -hmm. bullet here. One of the things that I would first say is to try to make yourself be uncomfortable Make sure mm. that if you ask that question, am I an alien and stranger? Do I legitimately feel like that mm-hmm. in the context where, where I happen to live? And if not, it, it could be time for you to make a move for the sake of the gospel, right? For the sake of your children, for the sake of just mm. feeling like an alien stranger. You know, there's, there's a, this curse of Babel that I sometimes call it, where if you get too many people piled up into one place, mm-hmm. God has not intended that to happen, right? He wanted us to fill the earth and to subdue it. But the, the principle of Babel is that so often, we want to come together and cluster and make a, a giant mound of people just like us mm-hmm. and make monuments to ourselves. That's a very unhealthy tendency. And when that happens, curses tend to fall in, in such places and it mm-hmm. tends to lead to very bad outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage people to think about being bold and trying to, to move and, and to mm-hmm. go to some new locality. And to me, it doesn't particularly matter where it is, so long as they're feeling that sense of stretch and they're feeling that stretch of discomfort. And that might mean trying to put yourself in situations like I've really lived most of my life where you do feel a little bit like an outsider. And I think that's gonna be really good and really healthy. I do see as well a, a, an incredibly important dynamic here of thinking about what are, what are our practices of the Lord's Supper. I do think that's, that's right at the heart of what the church should stand for and be. And, and if we don't address those even structurally, I think we're setting ourselves up for, for failure down the road. I think there's also a lot to be said for just looking at the fruit and looking at the congregation that you're in and asking the question, how are we doing with, mm. with our own diversity here? Are, do we reflect the composition mm-hmm. of the people that we are around? And if not, we probably have put up some kind of barrier, some kind of who knows what around us that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's keeping people out. And don't blame them, you know, like, the easiest thing to do is to just throw rocks and say, oh, this, they're just pagans and heathens and they don't mm-hmm. get it, right? We should just ask the question, maybe, maybe it's us, maybe we're doing things wrong. And Alan Roth mm-hmm. has made some really great suggestions and I think done an excellent job mm-hmm. at modeling how, how uh, someone like him himself, who obviously comes from a conservative Mennonite background, can do really well at outreach mm-hmm. with a multi-ethnic uh, group. It involves things like he's got a great expression... Don't do a swarm model. He talks about how, you know, so often churches start with just they swarm, like you know, ten families or six families going to one place. Well, mm-hmm. you know, guess what? Now you've just made a, a miniature version of what you had before in a new place, and you've now put up a lot of barriers for mm. people coming from the outside because they're going to feel like the odd man out, right? And it'd be much better if you could start with a small, much, much smaller group and be in a place where there's relational hunger to, like, you don't feel satisfied because you're not with a bunch of people that you're close with already. You've got to make new relationships. So those are some ideas on how to do that, but I, yeah. as I said, I think it's a multifactorial problem.
1: Basically, we need to be very intentional and really think this through. Absolutely. Absolutely. We
2: need to be very intentional with this, and if we don't succeed in that, the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to win them. Somebody mm-hmm. else is going to win them, right? And we see that those groups are doing very yeah. well at, at yeah. reaching broadly international and ethnic communities. And that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy when cults are are doing better and are more intentional Mm -hmm. than people who have the truth. For more information about Anabaptist Perspectives, to read our blog, to donate, and to see videos of the conversations you hear on this podcast, visit anabaptistperspectives.org. We'd love to hear from our audience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast or send us a message through our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives.
1: Thank you for listening to Anabaptist Perspectives. Your listening and sharing this with friends helps more people find our episodes. A special thanks to all of you who support Anabaptist Perspectives financially. We are here because of you. If you haven't had the chance to give yet this year, would you consider making a year-end donation? You can donate on our website or by check. Thank you so much for listening and supporting Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at AnabaptistPerspectives.org.